0: Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in North in, in, in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people known today as the Stockbridge Muncie community. I'm Marshall Hildred.
1: And I'm Cena Bazilahickey. And today on the Hudson Mohawk magazine, we Mark Dunley brings us a story on advocates pushing for the Community Media Reinvestment Act. Then Cameron Melville of Medical Relief uh, for Ukraine tells us about marking the second anniversary of the Russia in, Russian invasion of Ukraine with a benefit screening of 20 Days in Mariupol. Then Caleb McPherson asks uh, Troy Story, a new podcast produced by John Selka, um, about this new podcast coming from the Collar City. After that, to com- commemorate Malcolm X's death day, Roaming labor correspondent Willie Terry spoke with Brother X of Albany about Malcolm's views on foreign affairs, electoral politics, and assassination. Finally, Paul Grondel of the New York State Writers Institute talks about celebrating UAlbany's 180th year and highlighting local and alumni talent. But first, hear the headlines.
0: The public library in Lake Luzerne that has been closed for five months due to the controversy over hosting a drag queen story hour is expected to reopen in early March.
1: The The Times Union reports that a report... From the state attorney general condemns Saratoga Springs's city officials and its police for a pattern of un- unconstitutional moves against Black Lives Matter protesters, including violating their First Amendment rights, arresting them on charges that were not supported by facts, implementing unlawful surveillance and intimidation. The attorney general report placed much of the blame on the former Mayor Meg Kelly, ex-public safety commissioner Robin Dalton, Police Chief Shane Crooks, and Assistant Chief John Catone, C- the, the Attorney General will continue its investigation and negotiate with the city to implement a number of reforms.
0: Saratoga Springs Public Safety Commissioner Tim Cole issued a statement Tuesday evening blasting the State Attorney General's office report as inaccurate and incomplete.
1: The Gazette reports that community care physicians and hospitals in the Albany medical health system have announced plans to drop Humana Medicare Advantage care plan coverage, leaving an untold number of patients with three options, pay for care out-of-pocket, switch insurers, or find new doctors.
0: Colony Republican Jeffrey Madden is running for state assembly in the district, being vacated by Democratic incumbent Pilsch deck who is running for albany county district attorney against david sores the 110th assembly district covers colony and niskiyuna along with parts of gilderland and schenectady that's it for headlines for those of you just tuning in you're listening to hudson mohawk magazine listener supported radio that builds community right here in troy new york and the surrounding capital region through broad grassroots participation
1: our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you can contribute, you can go to mediasanctuary.org, email us at hmm@mediasanctuary.org, at mediasanctuary.org, or call us at 518-272-2390.
0: The Community Media Reinvestment Act in New York State would help fund public, educational, and government community media access centers around New York State. The bill would impose an excise tax on large streaming and satellite corporations, with part of the revenue going to PEG, similar to fees presently charged for cable television. Anthony Aaron, chairman of the Alliance for Community Media New York, talks with Mark Dunley.
2: Hi, I'm Anthony Aryan I'm chair of the Alliance for Community Media of New
3: York. And I understand you're at the state legislature because there's a, a bill you're trying to get passed to provide some funding for community media?
2: Yes, that's correct. It's called the Community Media Reinvestment Act. And it's both in the Senate and the Assembly, S2581 and uh, A5900.
3: And so, what's you know, how much money would it raise for community media? Um, you know, what are the type of uh, community media activities you would fund, or the, the legislation would fund? Well, it would fund
2: community media and much more. About 40% of it would fund community media that exists or wants to exist. Another 40% would fund the local municipalities to help their local budgets, and um, uh, the other 20% we'll help New York, the New York State government administer that and just have some income for them.
3: Now, I in the capital district over the years there have been struggles with our local cable providers because normally it's part of their franchise agreements. They're supposed to put up uh, you know, some funds to support community media operations. Usually it doesn't work out the way you want to, to do it. Um, you know, How is that type of franchise funding going for community media in New York State at the moment?
2: Well, that franchise fee income is declining quite fast, not only in New York, but everywhere. In Massachusetts, I'm on the Northeast Region Board. And um, that, the, the thing about it in New York State is that doesn't necessarily fund community media because it goes in the general fund. And what has happened in most places in New York State is nothing or almost nothing goes to community media. This bill would change all that.
3: So what is the extent of community media in New York State at the present moment? You know, are there particular hot spots or communities where it's doing well and other places where a little bit of a desert?
2: Well, sad to say, most of New York State is a desert. The only place that is really going strong is in New York City, where it started with George Stoney years ago um, and a couple of select cities and then a couple of small towns here and there usually because there was somebody in that area that was uh, technically savvy and uh, said look I can do this for you and they stepped up but for the rest of New York State they may not even know what they don't have public education and government access you know your local meetings your school board meetings uh, government meetings of all kinds and your local events covered like Massachusetts and Vermont and New Hampshire and <laughs>
3: Connecticut has so how how, how would this uh, actually raise you know funds for a community meter and you know right now governor Hochul has been quite vocal she doesn't want any more taxes and I'm sure she might describe this even despite its source as a new tax.
2: Well here's what I have to say about that. There are 30 other states in the United States that are already taxing digital media. In the Northeast region, it's just New York and Massachusetts that haven't been taxing it and Massachusetts has a bill very similar to this that they're working on very hard. Um, the, The franchise fees has been only taxing one form of communication the old, dying cable system. And that's the only communications that that is taxed. And that's kind of unfair. And um, it, it's time to, to get up with the times and equally tax everything. And to, to make a portion of it, uh, Here we're not asking for all of it like Massachusetts and, and Vermont do, does. We just need a portion of it to create jobs and to create our local media. And it makes perfect sense. And um, uh, it, in terms of taxes, if you don't believe that com- community media there, or cable should be taxed, then we should be giving back all those franchise fees and say, you know, we shouldn't be taxing that. I don't see anybody wanting to return those millions. The rest of the country is saying, no, we sh- everybody should not only pay in to this, this infrastructure and, and community media uh, tax, everybody, no matter where you live, should be able to see your hyper local information your school board meetings your your town meetings and, and ha- have local coverage of your events
3: so can you walk us through this bill you're talking about digital media so you know what digital media would be covered what type of funds are we talking about raising and then how would groups be able to or municipalities be able to access such funds
2: this bill taxes anything that isn't cable so that can mean streaming, that is satellite, this is a comprehensive bill in New York, all of all the media together, and any future means. So it covers anything other than cable that should be taxed the same rate that cable was all these years at 5%. What was the second part of your question? Uh,
3: how would groups be able to access the funds? So, so you know, once you raise the money, where does the, the money go?
2: In this bill, 40% of the money goes to the municipalities by population where it came from. Another 40% goes to community media if you have it or if you desire it. If you don't have it, that's fine. The, uh, if nobody steps up, you know, you can have a, a, a nonprofit organization say, hey, I'll, we'll run all three. We'll run your public educational government and we can stream it, we can do anything with it, but you need the funds for the technology and for the personnel to do that. And the last 20% goes to New York State. And this is similar to the Massachusetts bill. So they can administer it and do whatever they, they need to do uh, to, to monitor it. But it's the most fair way to spread the cost amongst all the telecommunications entities and not just the cable box. Because those same companies that had cable, they are, are avoiding paying that tax by uh, the franchise fees, by doing all-in-one streaming boxes over the internet and those have not been taxed. Under this bill, that would be taxed too. So maybe they wouldn't be in such a hurry to kill cable, but we can see where this is all going. There's more bandwidth in other methods than the old, old cable system through, through internet and uh, satellite and, and in the future, probably cell tower.
3: Now, you said that other states, uh, many states already have some form of this. How has that worked out uh, in other places?
2: In, in terms of their income, oh, I think that you asked me what kind of income would we expect. Think of if you know your local uh, budgets and how much franchise fees, in income, that you have lost over the years for the, for the income line of your town, you'd get that back and a little more, plus... That that's for community media. Plus, you'd get that amount again uh, added to your general fund. So this will help people's local property taxes, and if it helps l- keep local property taxes down, then it will help keep rents down. But if you if you let the franchise fees just go away, where's that extra revenue gonna come from? To, to pave the roads. It's going to come out of the property owner's pockets. So you, you have your choice. You can tax equally all of the telecommunications companies, or you can put it on the consumer.
3: Has, it, has this bill been pending previously in the New York State legislature, and what have been some of the arguments uh, in, in favor or opposition to it?
2: Well, I haven't heard any. This is the first time that it's been introduced. Some people think that it's, it's going to be a um, – oh, I think that's my phone. Hang, hang on. Thing. I, I meant to say, if, it's, if this bill doesn't pass, instead of if this do doesn't pass, it will go to you know, the property owners and onto their local tax rather than onto the telecommunication companies. And now, the, before my phone rang.
3: So, so, do you, so what's the opposition been? You know, what's the lack of the bill passed in the state legislature? What's the argument?
2: I think the only argument I, I've heard was, "Oh, is this going to just raise the the uh, the consumer's cost of this?" And we actually have a a revision in the bill that will disallow being able to pass through this onto the consumer. And according to our expert, uh, Dr. Lee Shaker, uh, it would be very hard for them to do that because there is a set rate that that all of the streamers charge. So that that, that would be have to be a, a countrywide thing so that wouldn't happen in New York so and the other revision that we put in the bill was to help areas that are not served by cable because they don't have enough homes per linear mile under this bill you could use the community media portion for extra purposes of uh, adding poles or, or putting a satellite sublink or anything else you you need to do to get to the most rural areas, all your local information.
3: So we're out of time. Once you just, Can you just give me your, your name, the your organization, and the um, uh, webpage?
2: I'm Anthony Aryan, Alliance for Community Media of New York, and our website is
3: www.acmny.org. This has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine.
1: That was Mark Dunley, as he mentioned. Mark is out this week, but we'll likely be back next week.
0: One of the many war zones currently around the world is in Ukraine, and this week marks two years since the war's onset. Sina basile spoke with medical relief for Ukraine on the conflict.
1: February 24th, 2024 marks two years since Russia invaded Ukraine. This day will be marked by a special benefit screening of the Oscar-nominated documentary 20 Days in Mariupol at Time and Space Limited in Hudson, New York organized by Medical Relief for Ukraine in cooperation with Ukraine Solidarity Capital District. Cameron, thank you so much for joining me.
4: Yes, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me.
1: Could you please introduce yourself?
4: Yeah, my name is Cameron Melville from Hudson, New York. I was one of the owners of Club Helsinki, which was a, a great uh, community venue, music venue in Hudson that's uh, since closed. Um, and uh, I got actively involved in Ukraine actually a couple of months before the Russian invasion and have been extremely involved since working with uh, regional Ukrainians and others to raise money for medical relief.
1: I realize this is a big question, but two years into the invasion, what is your assessment of what's happened and how do we move forward in this sad anniversary?
4: Yeah, well, um, we move forward by persevering and standing strong and keeping our eye on the ball. Uh, It's a very, very confusing environment, media environment and every other kind of environment. Um, And people are exhausted certainly on the ground in Ukraine, Uh, donors. I mean, everyone is exhausted, uh, tired, and uh, it's easy to let uh, discouragement creep in. Um, I remain confident that this uh, Ukrainian military funding is going to pass Congress, uh, and I think uh, the world needs to stay focused. Uh, Certainly the United States and Europe on stopping uh, Putin, I think it's, uh, it's an existential threat to democracy. So, you know, in the, in the beginning, there was uh, incredible commitment. There always has been, certainly in the Ukrainian uh, community. Uh, but it's a hard slog. and uh, But we need to keep our eye on the prize, which is uh, driving the Russians out of Ukraine.
1: How important has relief aid been in supporting people who are still in Ukraine?
4: Uh, it's been hugely helpful, and there are an awful lot of people doing it. I do it actually in three or four different uh, protocols. One is through our organization, Medical Relief for Ukraine. Uh, we uh, support uh, several doctors and medical uh, institutions on the ground. Next Step Ukraine, which is affiliated with Revival Soldiers of Ukraine, is one of our partner nonprofits that we support. Irina Verchuk is the director, I believe, of Next Step, and uh, they do post-prosthetic uh, rehabilitation. And they now, I believe it's the first medical rehab in Ukraine uh, set to American medical standards, They've been open a couple of months, and uh, uh, we also uh, support other uh, doctors and people working uh, for medical relief uh, on the ground.
1: So the film, the Oscar-nominated documentary 20 Days in Mariupol, what is the film about?
4: So this is our second movie event. Uh, the last one also was at Time Space Limited in Hudson, which is... a. Uh, uh, a great venue that is made available for a variety of different uh, political and community events. Uh, the first movie we showed was Winter on Fire, which is an incredible documentary about the Maidan uprising of 2014 and 20 days in Mariupol. So when the Russians went on the move on the February 24th, uh, one of their first uh, invasions and occupations was the city of Mariupol. Um, it was typically brutal, uh, in typical Russian sense, uh, horrible. And, uh, it was a civilian humanitarian disaster. And that's what the movie is about is that those first 20 days, we also, and it's an incredible documentary. As you said, it just, uh, actually last week it won more awards, uh, in England. I'm not, I don't remember the name of the award offhand, but, uh, the reason we chose to show this is uh to remind people you know people get uh there's so much media and so much news and so much information and disinformation that people get a little desensitized to things and uh this is to remind people of just how bad it is, how bad it can be, and uh, how bad it was, and why we need to uh, resist the Russians. And uh, in addition to the movie, we have four videos that we made, Medical Relief for Ukraine. Uh, we reached out to two doctors who were in Mariupol for the first 20 days and were uh were continuing with their medical care with no electricity, no water, etc. Um, and then we uh, also have a woman who was a civilian in the city who was under fire and uh, uh, also a soldier who was part of uh, Azov Stahl, which uh, was the brigade, the Ukrainian military brigade. It was holed up in the steel mill there for a long time, and it was a horrendous situation. He was repatriated by the Russians in a prisoner exchange, and he is now sort of a rock star in Ukraine. Uh, He goes by Mr. Wikipedia because he's so smart. (laughs) The movie starts at 1.30. Doors are at about 12.15. We encourage people to get there by 12.30. TSL has a nice gallery and cafe. There'll be refreshments. Uh, People can mingle and meet. Uh, There'll be some interesting folks there. Uh, participants, members of our uh, participating organizations. There will be a Q&A discussion, uh, so it'll be a combination. We're actually going to break the documentary uh, into two parts. There'll be an intermission. So we'll have a couple of our videos and half of the documentary, and then, uh, again, two videos and finish up with the documentary. Um, and it should be very educational. Uh, It's not a walk in the park. Uh, It's a uh, dark subject, but it's something we need to not turn away from and educate ourselves about. So we are trying to help people do that.
1: And attending this event is to support relief efforts. Is that right?
4: Uh, Yeah, all proceeds for the event go to medical relief for Ukraine. Uh, 100 percent of those donations go to medical relief.
1: And where can listeners find more information?
4: Uh, So the website of our organization is MR, is in medical relief, MR, the number four in the word Ukraine, MR4Ukraine.org. You should be able to buy tickets there. Uh, Also, Time Space Limited, which is the name of the venue in Hudson. You can go to their website. I believe it's uh, timeandspace.com.
1: Cameron, it's been a pleasure to talk with you. As we mark this sad second anniversary, what would you like to leave our listeners with?
4: Don't forget about Ukraine. And uh, again, with all the madness uh, that is happening uh, nationally, internationally, with all the distraction, uh, the importance of this uh, does not diminish. So uh, I would encourage people to remember that and spread the word.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you. That was Cameron Melville speaking about the benefit coming up on February 24th, 2024, at Time and Space Limited in Hudson, New York, to commemorate two years uh, into this invasion from uh, Russia into Ukraine.
0: For those of you just tuning in, I'm Marshall Hildreth.
1: And I'm Sina basila You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany, and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from The Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York.
0: If you like what you hear, you can support this program by sharing our content. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. Troy Story, a new podcast produced and hosted by John Salka, talks with local Trojans on civic affairs, local government, politics, business, the arts, music, and community. In addition to exploring Troy's past, the podcast discusses its present and future. Kaylin McPherson sat down with John Salka to learn more.
5: This is Kalen McPherson reporting for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Today, I am talking with producer and host of the Troy Story podcast, John Salka.
6: Welcome to the program. Thanks, Kalen. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself sure i am the former communications director for the city of troy new york Uh, served under two mayors communications professional do it for living and i'm also the host of the troy story a podcast for the collar city so what is the troy story podcast so the troy story podcast is an oral history podcast that speaks with residents community members civic leaders about different pieces of the city of Troy's 200-year history. Um, It was an idea that I was kicking around for a number of years in different iterations, and it was towards uh, the end of 2023 where I really kind of had a sense of the type of show that I wanted to do. I am a voracious consumer of podcasts. And I listened to a lot of them. And uh, I just felt like there was a lot of the history of Troy that sort of tends to get forgotten or hazy or blurry as the years pass by. And in my previous job working... For the city as the communications director, I, I had the opportunity to, to meet with a lot of people, build relationships, and learn a lot about the history of Troy. So I thought, why let a lot of these interesting stories disappear with the passage of time? Let's speak to a lot of these people and let's let's hear their stories about Troy and Rensselaer County in a, to a certain degree, uh, get that down on, on record and uh, be able to share that with other people to learn a little bit of more about the community that they live in.
5: So you're saying you're going to focus mainly on Troy, but do a little bit of history of Rensselaer County?
6: Yeah, I I think the city of Troy being the largest municipality by population in Rensselaer County, I believe we represent one third of the entire county's population. Inherently, we're just a a big part of the history of Rensselaer County. But the podcast does focus very specifically on Troy.
5: Why is it so important to tell the story and preserve these stories of Troy, New York?
6: Yeah, that's a great question. I am a graduate of the College of St. Rose. I have a history and political science degree. Um, I also worked in the radio. I did a radio uh, program over there as well. And so I've always enjoyed doing that type of of work, capturing people's stories, learning about history, and when I was thinking about my sort of adopted hometown of Troy, New York, and all of these different stories uh, from from all different eras, all different people from all different walks of life, I I just really thought it was important to be able to capture people's own words. You know, it, it's it's great when someone's story is told through a book and well researched or told through a newspaper article, but there's something really compelling in hearing someone. Tell their own story about their life and their life, whether growing up in Troy, working in Troy, living in Troy, owning a business in Troy. And for example, the upcoming episode uh, with former Mayor Mark Patterson, who is the mayor from 1996 to 2003, he went into his backstory about growing up in West Sand Lake, his father running for Congress in the 70s after Watergate, and 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 winning successfully following Nixon's resignation, and then later in his life when he was in his mid to late 40s deciding he was going to run for mayor and his run against the fin- the major financial issues that the city was going through at that time that was a really compelling story that really only he could tell himself as sort of a you know a, a, literally the 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 subject of um of the story so that's why i think it's important to hear the subject themselves tell their own story as opposed to the voices of others
5: right and i think it's important to get these oral histories there's something about getting oral history opposed to written history that changes how it comes a- across
6: yeah absolutely um th- th- and i'm i'm not saying there's anything wrong with history books or even reporting or or you know independent research etc i think those are all important versus primary versus secondary resources etc but you're right there is something very compelling hearing somebody's own voice telling their Story. It's just much more engaging. And when it's a, a podcast audio only format, it really, I think, is, is just much more engaging. It allows you to kind of sit in their story and hear their voice and hear their personality, how they remember how they remember these events in their lives.
5: What do you want people to take away from your podcast?
6: Gosh, that there is so much unique and distinct history, interesting characters from the city of Troy. And to be fair, the village of Lansingburg, which eventually merged into the city of Troy a hundred years ago, that connects the city to uh, the United States uh, broadly. Um, We were one of the wealthiest cities in the nation at the city's earliest inception. We were home to industry and shipping, and uh, we benefited so greatly from our location on the Hudson River. You know, how many historical figures have Have a connection, deep connection to uh, Troy, or even in some cases a very tangential, like abstract connection. You know, like Moby uh, um, Herman Melville living here in the city of Troy, or or former President Chester Arthur living here uh, for a brief period of time. Um, People should just, uh, you know, I want to be able to connect individuals to those stories, and also to perhaps set the record straight on a lot of more recent history, the things that happened in the city, probably even from the last uh, 30 years, 30 years ago, was um, in some people's lives quite a long time ago. Um, And uh, we shouldn't forget, as much as we want to remember our distant past history, we should also be very cognizant of our more recent history, where we've been, where we're going, and who are the people that are affecting the trajectory of where we are now.
5: You can learn a lot from history and take it into the future.
6: Yeah, absolutely. I think the interviews I've done so far have even shown me someone who considers themselves sort of like a, a ravenous consumer of of local history, political history, uh, world history, United States history. I've learned so much even just in the two or three interviews that we've we've done so far.
5: Could you give us like a random fact about Troy that maybe somebody doesn't know?
6: Ooh, that's good. Another great example from the upcoming former mayor Patterson interview, he was telling the story of when he decided to run for mayor, the city was going through a public referendum to switch from what was a city manager form of government to a strong mayor form of government. Um, meaning that the mayor would be directly elected, and the mayor would be the 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 chief executive of the city, as opposed to sort of like a member of the city council. And he decided that he was going to run, and he got, he basically announced his campaign. And the the Democratic chair called him up and said, "Nope, I'm not endorsing you. I'm not supporting you. We have somebody else." And so Mark said, "Ah, oh, geez, that 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 stinks. All right, well, I'm going to run, but if I lose, you know, so be it." Well, he says two weeks later the, the democratic chair called him back and said uh turns out the other guy doesn't want to do it you're <laughs> i guess we're going to endorse you you're the only candidate so that was how we got into the race and then you know as they say the rest is history he was elected mayor and and re-elected and served for for two terms so one person deciding to decide not to run determined you know essentially who could become the next mayor which is really interesting
5: yeah it is really interesting so i was looking and Will each episode have a guest or will some episodes just be, you know, just you
6: talking or each episode will have a guest. Uh, That is the principal format of the show as, as an oral history podcast. I try and stay out of the way as much as possible. I have some questions that I like to use as prompts to sort of encourage the guests to start talking and telling their story. And then as we, you know, as we listen to them telling their individual uh, backstory. I may ask them specific questions, follow-ups. You know, how old were you at that time, or who who was who was the mayor, or you know, what was what was the status of of um you know what were the big industries at the time, or whatever. So uh, it's definitely interview one-on-one is the current format. Uh, in the future, we may have multiple guests at the same time, but right now it's it's one-on-one for purposes of the individual storytelling.
5: Um, with about a minute left to go, um. Can you give us a sneak peek of what's to come in the next couple episodes? And is there anything else you'd like to say and uh, that I didn't ask, and where can people find more information?
6: Yeah, if people are interested in finding more information about the podcast, they can visit troystorypod.com. Uh, we're also on on social media, on all the various sites at Troy Upcoming episodes we've got uh, scheduled. We're talking to some uh, we're talking to a local author about an upcoming book on a topic that's uh uh sort of close to my heart i don't want to give it away because the the the,
5: the book itself
6: has a publication it has its own publication PR and pr and media outreach schedule that i obviously can't uh i can't get into oh, okay. but we're talking to some other local civic leaders we're talking to um, some local business owners um We have a big, long list of people that I'm trying, you know, we either request interviews or work to schedule interviews. Um, There's just so much. We're certainly going to revisit the Gilded Age filming here in Troy. There's from the past two seasons, there's a lot of people who have so many great stories about the show filming here in Troy. And I got the show, uh, got a lot of feedback um, about that. People wanted to hear more more about the Gilded Age. So, we're certainly going to revisit that topic as well.
5: Thank you again, John Silka. This has been Kaylin uh, McPherson reporting for that Mohawk Magazine. I've been talking with John Silka, the host and producer of the Troy Story Podcast. Again, that website is troystorypod.com. Thank you again.
1: Troy Story Pod is on Instagram and uh, on that website. And I know, I think it's just been one. Peace so far but we're very excited to hear some more local talent
0: yes on to our next segment on February 21st 1965 Malcolm X was assassinated while speaking at Audubon Dubon ballroom in Harlem at the age of 39 that day the black community and the world lost a powerful voice in the liberation movement On Tuesday, 21st, 2024, HMM roaming correspondent, Willie Terry spoke with Brother X of Albany about Malcolm's views on foreign affairs, electoral politics, and assassination. This is part one of Willie's discussion with Brother X.
7: This is Willie Terry, a roaming labor correspondent for the Hudson Mohawk magazine. I have on the phone uh, Brother X. We're going to discuss Malcolm X. So, Brother X, before I get started, just kind of... Just tell people a little bit about you. Sure, sure. Um, I am uh, Brother X. Uh,
8: I was the chairman and head of local organizing committee, Justice of commissioned by the Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan from uh, 2017 to 2020. Uh, we have since uh, disbanded, but uh, for a number of the years that we did it, we we're a very active group i uh, focus on focused uh, on nationalism, nationalism, specifically from the Black American community, dealing with education, dealing with law, dealing with uh, resources, government, uh, and, and most importantly, historical context uh, in regards to the relationship between Blacks and the United States of America. Um, I've also had a podcast called Get Your Hand in My Pocket that focused on some of the same things, current events as well, whether it be the President of the United States have uh, some local things going on in regards to uh, police treatment of black males, and so on and so forth. Uh, and so uh, my, I call him my ancestral father and teacher, uh, Mr. Malcolm X. We also created Malcolm X Park in uh, Albany, New York, on the corner of Clinton and Lark Street. So it was just a space for anybody who want to do anything in regards to fighting the powers that be, are recognizing historical people who did uh, the same thing. Uh, it was a starting point for a lot of marches in the last few years in regards to uh, freedom of liberation and or uh, uh, rightful treatment.
7: And, uh, Brother X, you preside here in the Capital Region, right?
8: Uh, yes, sir, in Albany, New York.
7: Okay, thanks. Right. So, Brother X, uh, on February the 21st uh, 1965, you know, Malcolm X was assassinated. And he was assassinated while speaking in the Alderman Ballroom in Harlem at the age of 39. And on that day, black people lost a powerful voice in the black liberation movement. So what I want to know is, what are your thoughts on this day?
8: This day, unfortunately, our great black leader was taken from us historically again in the United States when they a uh, black man stands up. Unfortunately, he meets in demise, and we recognize the day that he was assassinated, and it, it becomes a grim type of feeling. I, 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 almost, <clears throat> I would love to more appreciate his birth, but at the end of his life and his accomplishments, you tend to look back, and you wonder, uh, As supposedly, especially me specifically, Uh, how he impacted my life as I did research and knowledge on him. Not too many people are aware of Malcolm X's existence in regards to younger folks um, who look like him and the impact he had on American society and why he did what he did and what the purpose was and how it affects uh, our people still today. So uh, I I reflect on not only his accomplishments, mistakes, personal interactions, people who are still alive who knew him and still have a recollection because he died in 1965, which is uh, basically about 60 years ago, and there's very few people who were around when he was around, and for them to have a ardent or uh, real complete memory of what they did together is important, too. Those people should be held uh, as well, and so when they can give those great detail, they put the pieces together of his life. You know, you have the individual person who lives the life through their own lens, and then there's people around them, or around them, and they can put in pieces uh, of their life because ultimately, uh, dear brother, we don't remember every day of our life. You know, we can barely remember who we ate two hours ago. You know what I'm saying? So there's always an individual who's around you at a particular time and can bring up a memory uh, of sorts from your past that you have no recollection of you know, and the story be uh, true and, and, and someone like Michael X you're always looking for that because they always have this common denominator of him being a strong individual in the face of the most powerful government that ever lived and fortunately, there's never any uh, bad or negative stories about him and, you know, that's what we live on to trying to live and be the best version of ourselves that we can be, and I think he definitely, you know, represented that being the best version of himself.
7: Now, you, like you said, a lot of people were around, especially young people during that time, and he had the last name X, and you have an X in your name. Kind of explain to people what, why, you, t- you know, he had the name X and you took on the name X.
8: Um, as uh, most people don't know is that he was a minister of the Nation of Islam I want to say nine years. And in that time, uh, when you get your ex as a, uh, 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 a believer of the Most Honorable Elijah Muhammad and the doctrine of the Nation of Islam, uh, if you put in fasting and prayer and years in, then they will grant you with the name X, which is connected to our ancestry and their last name, which we've lost based upon our, our origins and our sojourn. To the North American continent. So those in power took that information from us. So a great deal of us don't know the origin last name of our people, the name that they gave themselves and the language that they they used and what they called each other. So they put the X there as an unknown, right? And then from that point, if you give more service, right, within the nation of Islam, you are given a name either by Uh, Your minister or the most honorable Elijah Muhammad during that time or honorable minister Louis Farrakhan will will give you a name unless you want to continue to keep the X. So the X is a representative of uh, hundreds and even thousands of years of stolen history uh, from our people. So that what that represents, the unknown. We don't know exactly where we come from because we don't have access to all the information uh, about people from a historical context. So that's, that's what that means.
7: Okay. All right. Well, today, uh, you know, I, I want to discuss with you, you know, not so much his, about his assassination, but about his worldviews, his worldviews on the uh, struggle that was going on throughout the world. What was some of the uh, views Malcolm X had concerning world affairs?
8: As a member of the Nation of Islam, it was more considered centered on nationalism and the aboriginal people here, the black Americans in this uh, society, in this continent when he took his sojourn to uh, Africa and uh, became an Orthodox Muslim, and uh, he got into internationalism. He became, took on his other monikers, and were humanitarian, and so on and so forth, which gave him a broader interconnection with global society. Because in the media, uh, during that time, they focused mainly on his speeches against uh, white supremacists, white supremacist groups, uh, white supremacist police, uh, politicians, and so on and so forth. And so he started to send messages back from Mecca when he took his his uh, uh, Mecca trip. He also went around Africa, and and found out that leadership had different colors. Leadership had different uh, foreign entities, and he was he was uh, he was very studious in regards to what was going on internationally. That it was a global uh, Western power structure, as he called it, that dominated globally. And so certain countries that were not American and not black, uh, in essence, were taking on the powers that be the same powers that we were fighting in America. He had realized that these things were going on in other countries. And so in his speeches and in his doctrine and in his philosophy, as it started to change, he dealt with attorneys, uh, different entities, uh, d- different islands, different uh, na- uh, African nations that were fighting the powers that be during that time there was a lot of guerrilla warfare that was going on. People were trying to get free. The Chinese was trying to get free. You know, Nigeria was trying to get free. Uh, he talked about the Mau Mau and, and their military groups and how they were completely and utterly outnumbered in regards to their percentages and the, the people who were uh, buffer groups that looked like them and then also the Britain Empire that they were fighting that was controlled, Africa. And so he dealt with, he came back with that information without people. He believed in freedom everywhere that it was. He believed that the people should uh, control the government. That the people should not be afraid of the government. It should be the other way around. And that we can collectively come up with a solution. right? If I'm going to different countries and there's poor people and there's, ang- and there's poor people and they're angry because they're poor and then you have an elite that has all the resources well that's unfair. right? And so and he spoke to those who decided that hey we no longer are going to talk about the problems that we have, we're going to take action and whatever action is necessary. That's when people hear this this great phrase, uh, by any means necessary, that it it didn't start with that. It went through all the phases necessary for the group that was quote-unquote called minorities or the specific group that was being uh, parasited on, right, talked about, hey, this isn't fair. These things need to change. And we're voicing this to you, and th- 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 those uh, voices weren't heard. So they went, they went to the next measures. And Malcolm <laughs> believed in that. He believed wholeheartedly. If whatever next measure you need to take, please take it.
1: I was roaming labor correspondent Willie Terry interviewing Brother X about Malcolm X's legacy. February twenty-first is the death day for Malcolm X.
0: There's a lot of interesting programming coming to the New York State Writers Institute. Paul Grondel spoke with Sina Basilla hickey about the upcoming season.
1: The New York State Writers Institute is just beginning its programming season that includes book talks, films, conversations with artists, workshops, and more. Paul Grondel, Opalka endowed director at New York State Writers Institute, helps me to dive a little bit deeper into the varied season ahead. Welcome back to Hudson Mohawk Magazine.
9: Thank you very much. Good to be here.
1: So I didn't realize that twenty twenty four is marking the one hundred eightieth anniversary of the founding of the University of Albany. That's amazing. And this yeah, season, yeah, a lot of
9: people don't realize eighteen forty four. We go way back.
1: So you wrote in your letter to uh, start off the season that you're focusing on writers with strong connections to U Albany. So what kind of talent has this university produced?
9: Yeah. So. The Writers Institute, this is our 41st year of presenting uh, the best writers really from around the country and around the world. But this year with our 180th, we wanted to remind people that there's an incredible talent pool right here, both at the university and throughout this region. So we're really leaning into that this semester. We have uh, coming up uh, Richard Mirabella, who's on the staff here at UAlbany. He's a novelist. We've got uh, Molly Guptil manning who's a alumna. We've got a couple of Meredith uh, professors, uh, Lydia Davis, and and also um, uh, we had one earlier in the season already. We've got faculty members Kira Gaunt and uh, an alumnus, a filmmaker Stephen Susi. So they're spread throughout the uh, fall semester of our programs. And just a reminder that uh, even though we do love bringing in writers from far away, that there are many really talented writers right here in the five one eight.
1: And. Just in this next week, there's a packed schedule beginning with Thursday, February 22nd, with Tales of a Dying Mall in upstate New York with author Karen yes. Lynn Greenberg. So yeah. Crossgates Mall and Colony Mall are just around the corner. So uh, what can you tell us about this talk?
9: Yeah, that's a beautiful book. I'm going to be doing the, the moderating. We also have some classes of students uh from English department and our writing and critical inquiry, which are all first year students. And they've read the novel. Um, as a journalist, I've covered a lot of our dying malls in in this region, but she taps into that whole trend and elevates the people that we might look past the person who, you know, is in the nail salon or the person who is in the food court and really dignifies and, and gives them, um, uh, real meaning, um, and it's a beautiful story. It's a it's a mother son story. She's in the nail salon that's about to close. There's somebody who's in the bookstore that's about to close as well. He's never can quite finish his own book and his dissertation, and she peoples her novel with all these real relatable characters that we've all seen when we pass through our malls and that we kind of look through, but she sort of forces us to take another look. And it's a beautiful novel. It actually made me cry, which I don't do that often at books. It's very tender, very moving. She's a professor at Siena College, and we're really happy to have her in our series.
1: Yeah, too often do we overlook a lot of uh, workers who are so important and that we come across every day. And then there's the film screening, Turn Every Page, The Adventures of Robert Caro and Robert Gottlieb the relationship between editor and writer, one which you have experienced yourself as a writer and journalist. Can you talk about that experience and the importance of the work that these two have produced, which looks at the power dynamics?
9: Yeah, so uh, Robert Caro is one of our greatest biographers, historian, the power brokers, kind of the gold standard, and Robert Moses, Um, but he's been working on this multi-volume Uh, the whole career of LBJ, Lyndon Baines Johnson, and he's in his mid to upper 80s now, and he's trying to finish this last book. And his editor throughout uh, the last 50 years was Robert Gottlieb, who passed away uh, last year in his 90s. And his daughter is a wonderful documentary filmmaker, Lizzie Gottlieb, who made this movie of this beautiful working relationship between writer editor, which is one of trust, one of respect. One of um, realizing everyone needs a good editor and even the most brilliant biographer can benefit from a good editor. And Robert Gottlieb is is famous for having edited so many amazing writers. He was the editor of the New Yorker for a while, um, but his daughter is coming to our film festival. It's coming up on April 6th. So this is an opportunity to show some full length and longer films that we didn't have time and space for. And then she'll be coming and having a conversation um, about making that film and about, you know, taking a deep dive with her father and Robert Caro.
1: Mm, that's great. And after that, there's an AI workshop. So AI is so complex. And uh, we could absolutely just talk about that on its own. Is the workshop focused on protecting oneself from AI or how to use it ethically? What, what kind of angle does this workshop take?
9: I think it's, uh, you know, AI is kind of the wild west right now. So the University of Albany is bringing on 27 new faculty members across many disciplines, many departments who are studying and researching AI. What is it impact? What is the ethical uses of it? How do we um, deal with property, uh, intellectual property? And I don't think anyone has a good answer. I've played with it a little bit Chat ChatGPT. I don't know if you have. It's a powerful tool. There's a question about, is it going to be a benefit to society? Is it going to be a detriment? I think it's a lot like when cell phones came in or when personal computers came in. Um, There's kind of a lot of fear and loathing right now about it, and this is an an opportunity to explore uh, the whole gamut of reactions and, and, and ways that this powerful tool will be used. So I think it's still very much a uh, work in progress and yet to be determined of uh, whether it's a plus and negative for society. We could say the same as social media. I mean, a lot of people think it's been a benefit, but a lot of people now, uh, they're, they're sort of pushing um, the big tech companies to control it a little bit, its impact on particularly preteens and teens. So I think AI fits into that category. We're still trying to figure it out and collectively, societally, um, you know, it's it's not determined yet.
1: It seems that AI is very much uh, both good and bad. Do you think that we can use it ethically if we're not also being taught critical thinking uh, at the same time?
9: Yeah, I think they have to go hand in hand. But again, is a hammer good or bad? If somebody uses it in a violent attack, it's bad. But if I build a house, a habitat for humanity, it's good. So I think this tool in different hands or different purposes could be good or bad. I hope it can lean more to the good. There's a lot to talk now, like what are the guardrails? What are the rules? Part of the problem with technology, it moves so fast, you can't really figure out how to control it until it's out of control. I would say certainly the social media platforms are kind of at that state now. So I I do think, you know, we need the best minds and best thinkers um, talking about how we can put this to good use uh, make it beneficial instead of detrimental.
1: We've only gone through three events and there's so many more, but we only have two minutes left and I just wanted to kind of maybe get a little bit of a broader view. What would you like listeners to understand about the spring schedule and maybe some, is there something particular that you want to spotlight?
9: I mean, our film festival is our big annual spring event. It's on April 6th on Saturday like all of our events, we're proud that we can present that free and open to all. Uh, we get a lot of donations and sponsors that make that possible. I guess we're always thinking about the next big thing, the next idea that we want to discuss and bring in some of the best minds and best writers. AI is just an example of that. Certainly, we've, we've looked at you know migrant issue, We've looked at free speech issues. You know, we also love a great book of poetry and, and, and great literary novels. You know, those writers can look at these big questions in in different ways, maybe less as researchers or scholars and more as creative, uh, artistic minds. But we we invite people. Our motto is uh, join the conversation. You know, we do bring together people who are passionate about reading and discussing ideas and the people that write books that, that spur a lot of discussion and ideas.
1: As a former student at SUNY Albany, I only attended the New York Writers Institute a few times. I didn't realize it was such an available and amazing resource on campus. What would you like some students to know about the access to information in this institute?
9: Yeah, that's a great question. You know, first and foremost, there's a reason we we put a lot of our authors at 4:30 on Tuesday and Thursday. We call them craft talks because they have English classes and and writing classes. These are aspiring writers. We think they can be inspired by by what these veteran uh, accomplished authors can can teach them, and we want them to realize that this is not really you know something you have to read the book every time you can come with an open mind and have a discussion we're, we don't need to put more work on on students but some of the classes actually read the books and these are classes for credit we love when they're there but we you know we get people from 6 to 96 literally at different events sometimes we have children's authors or YA authors and we're doing more. Uh, with seniors we were at the beverwick uh, senior community recently i worked with and they came to our book festival seniors at shaker point Um, people in their 80s 70s 80s and 90s who are really good writers and now they've published their own writing and we invite them to come as well
1: paul Grondel, it's always such a pleasure to speak with you and to hear what's coming up at new york state writers institute thank you so much for joining me
9: I appreciate your time, Cena. This is really nice. Thank you.
1: And as I mentioned, we only got through like three of those events, and there's a full calendar that you can be viewed at nyswritersinstitute.org.
0: And that's our show. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Marshall Hildreth.
1: And I'm Sina Hickey. Our engineer is Joan Eason. And we want to thank all the volunteers who made today's episode possible. This is a team effort. So Mark Dunley, Willie Terry, Kaylin McPherson, Bria Barthel, and those previously mentioned here in the studio, Marshall and Joan. And we also have Bria and Lennox in the studio. (laughs) This program covers stories of social and environmental justice produced by the community for the community and is supported by independent donations. If you value independent media, consider a gift of a monthly donation as a sanctuary sustainer by going to mediasanctuary.org.
0: And we want to hear from you. Find us on Instagram and Facebook at Hudson Mohawk Mag or send us an email at hmm at mediasanctuary.org. You can always tune in on weekdays, 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream us at Sanctuary Radio at our website at mediasanctuary.org. Full episodes and individual stories are available on demand at our website and on your favorite podcasting platform. And thank you always to our listeners. You make this possible and so fun. Have a great rest of your night.